Welcome to Holistic Wellness, a podcast exploring the science and metaphysics of health and wellness. I'm your host, Brandi Searcy, founder and formulator at Rain Organica, where you'll find holistic skincare in one simple routine. Today, we're going to talk about just that topic. We'll also talk about how all of the various ways that a newborn's um, skin is different from an adult skin, and basically how your skin changes throughout your life and at all of your different life stages. We're going to start out just focusing on skin pH, and then once we're finished with that topic, we'll talk about a few other things as well. So let's get into it. Newborns have a high skin pH compared with adults. The pH of a newborn babe is right around seven, which is neutral on the pH scale. So the pH scale, you can think of it from going from uh, like zero to 14 with anything below seven being acidic, anything above seven being basic or alkaline. Um, and seven being that sweet spot of neutral. When newborns and infants develop diaper rash and other skin conditions that show up as blisters and fragile skin, maybe that's been diagnosed as baby eczema or something like that, they typically respond well when soap is eliminated from their bath time because soaps have alkaline pH, which means the pH is above seven, and this usually further exacerbates the problem. This is also why lotions and ointments that contain gluconolactone and lactobionic acid help treat the condition. So both of those ingredients are acidic and help to bring the pH of the skin back towards um, neutral in these babes. Children so beyond babies, children also have a more fragile acid mantle compared with people who've entered puberty and adults. For adolescents and adults, the skin's pH is somewhere around five and a half. And here specifically, we're talking about the pH of the acid mantle. And this technically sits on the skin's surface. So the acid mantle is really composed of all of your skin's, all of your skin's flora, um, plus like, this is going to sound gross, but excrement from your body, whether that's sweat, whether it's sebum, whether it's um, part of the cells that are debris off the surface of your skin, and then also the bacterial waste product from the flora that sit on your skin surface. Yeah, I know it kind of sounds gross, but anyways, um, so that all contributes to the pH of this acid mantle, which is around five and a half. Now, the range there is about four to six, depending on your age, the location that the skin sample is taken from. So studies show that on average, the pH of the skin on your forehead is a little bit more acidic than the pH of the skin on your neck. And the skin on your neck is more acidic than say the pH of the skin on your legs. So the pH of the acid mantle on your legs. 
skin color and other genetics also play a factor. Sometime around the age of 50 or so, skin's pH begins to become slightly more alkaline, so it begins to shift up back towards neutral. Um, and this is commonly associated with dryness in older adults. How does your skin change throughout the early years of life? Infants have smaller corneocytes and a thinner stratum corneum compared with adults. So the corneocytes, again, are, and we talked about this in the very first podcast episode, we went into um, like the layers of your stratum corneum pretty, pretty in depth in that episode. Um, and the corneocytes are the dead skin cells um, in those, uh, well, that's not true. The corneocytes actually um, start in the stratum basal and then they migrate up to the surface. And so they're forming every layer of the epidermis itself. And in infants, the corneocytes are smaller in size than they are in adults. And then also infants have a thinner stratum corneum layer. So the stratum corneum is the outermost layer of your epidermis. That is um, one of the dead, dead cell layers or dead skin layers of the epidermis. And it varies in thickness on different parts of your body. So just thinking about your, um, thinking about your face, like your cheeks would be about 30 skin cells thick for the stratum corneum. And then if you compare that with a baby, the baby is likely gonna have fewer of those um, stratum corneum layers or because the corneocytes themselves are smaller, those layers are going to be more compact. And so it'll be thinner across the stratum corneum than in adults. And infants also have a higher rate of cellular turnover compared with adults. During childhood, while the dermal and epidermal thickness increases in both girls and boys, boys tend to develop a thicker dermal and epidermal layer compared with girls. And this is during childhood. Um, dermal comp by the time you hit adolescence, the dermal composition is already beginning to change. And believe it or not, the amount of collagen in skin begins decreasing at a linear rate throughout adolescence in both girls and boys. Now, while the rate of collagen reduction is about the same between girls and guys throughout adolescence or throughout puberty, because women start with a lower collagen density than men, we appear to age earlier than men. This seems so unfair. Before we move on from here, it's worth noting that babies and children have a few other different skin properties from adults. The skin of preemies and newborns has a higher absorptive capacity than adults, and given their tiny size, the surface area to volume of skin to body in these babies is also worth serious consideration. For this reason, things that, you know, I wouldn't think about twice for my skin could cause harm for a little one. And um, we'll talk about that a little bit more here in a sec. Just wanted to share one of the most common questions that I'm asked as a skincare business owner, and that is, can I use this on my child? And my question, and it's not to be condescending, it's just, it's one of sheer curiosity of 
why do you want to use it on your child? Like, why do you feel compelled to use skincare on your child? Is it something that society really, this is, this is a huge question for me. It's like, is society really driving us to think that everybody needs skincare regardless of our age? Cause for me, when I was a child, and honestly, even today, if I didn't have to use skincare products, I wouldn't use skincare products. And when I was a child, I didn't have, like, I didn't have a reason for using skincare products, at least not routinely. I mean, aside from like soap, but when it comes to my, like my skin didn't itch as a kid, I didn't have acne as a kid. Um, my face didn't feel you know, dry if I didn't use lotion as a child. So it, it's really a question of like, why, I guess, why do we feel compelled to use stuff when it's unnecessary? That shouldn't be the case. Um, so anyways, if I still had gorgeous glowing legs and a blemish-free complexion and like my skin just didn't feel dehydrated when I didn't have lotion or oil on it um, after showering. I wouldn't have a skincare routine even today. Um, so anyways, circling back around because this kind of leads into another question also is, is it safe to use essential oils on infants? We commonly gloss right over um, essential oils and accept them as safe simply because they're natural. And when I say we here, I'm not talking about you. Um, I'm talking about myself a little bit. And then also society at large is that we've kind of accepted this, oh, natural equals safe. And it doesn't. Um, essential oils and herbs are both very powerful and they're both natural. It's one thing for a 125 pound woman to slather a body oil containing essential oils only all over her body and not think a thing of it. I mean, I myself do this daily. It's another thing when we're putting a body oil containing essential oils on a newborn or a baby or you know, even a, even a toddler, um, because they already, they're such a small size and their surface area to volume ratio is huge, like so much more than it is for an adult. And on top of that, their skin has a higher absorptive capacity. So they're able to, I mean, we know as adults, like anything that we put on our skin, it's getting in there for the most part. Um, and it's the same way with a baby. If, if whatever goes on their skin, just assume it's absorbed and it can lead to a serious situation quickly. Um, okay. One more thing here, because it just goes hand in hand. You may have thought when I said I didn't use skincare as a child, you're probably already here. You probably already here a few minutes ago. What about sunscreen? Oh, you caught me. Sunscreen is 
the one thing that I used on my skin as a child, in addition to soap. So I guess that's two things. Now, when it comes to sunscreen, my view of sunscreen as a kid and my view of sunscreen as an adult is quite different. Um, FDA is even rethinking sunscreens and reclassifying 14 of the 16 sunscreen ingredients, um, basically saying only two are still generally regarded as safe and effective. And those are the physical sunscreens, zinc oxide and titanium dioxide. And the reason that those don't get into your skin, at least when they're non-micronized, is because they're a sufficient particle size. So they're not unlike the chemical sunscreens, which are solubilized in the solution. So when they go on your skin, they're solubilized in the lotion or the cream or the ointment or whatever it is. And so they're more able to penetrate your skin. And like that, you can think of um, zinc oxide and titanium dioxide. It's more like if you took a handful of dirt and mix some water with it to make mud and then put that on your skin, like the mud's not going to get inside your skin. That's kind of how the titanium dioxide and the zinc oxide both are because they're physical particles. Um, they're not solubilized in the, um, in the sunscreen. So if, for more information on sunscreens, um, because we've, we've covered that in a whole series, that's linked in today's show notes. You can head there to take a listen. For now, we'll continue the conversation, um, kind of rein it back in and continue talking about the differences between children's skin and adult skin to fully flesh out this conversation around acne. So we're gonna move into sebum and acne now. The sebaceous gland contains sebacytes and sebacytes are cells that are filled with sebum. There are also holocrine glands. And what this means is that when they release sebum, that's their job, that's the job of a sebocyte. It's the job of a sebum containing cell is to release sebum. Well, when they release sebum, they're destroyed because of the type of gland that they are. Um, so along with the sebum, which we'll talk about more here in a sec in terms of composition, the cell membrane of the sebaceous gland and all of its cellular components are part of that secretion. Sebum is composed of about 40% triglycerides, about 25% wax esters, roughly 10 to 15% squalene, and about 15% free fatty acids. So back to the original question, why don't children get acne? Children produce less sebum than adults do. So one study evaluated sebum compared with the number of sebocytes in children and how the researchers did it. And yes, this is too much information. Let's talk about it anyways. Um, so the researchers looked at the unique part of sebum, specifically the wax esters, and then the unique part of the sebocytes, specifically the cholesterol plus cholesterol esters that are found in the sebocyte cellular membrane. And then they normalized sebum production in children and adults on a wax ester to cholesterol plus cholesterol ester ratio. In this study, well, it, it, that's how researchers do these types of studies. 
In this particular study, um, sebum was collected and measured for 24 children between the ages of six and eight. So in the breakdown of that looks like this, there were four children age seven and then 10 children age, sorry, let me start over. There were four children age six in the study and then 10 children each age seven and age eight. So 10 children in this age seven bracket, 10 children in the age eight bracket, four children in the age six bracket. And what the researchers found was a strong linear correlation between age and sebum levels in children. And the eight-year-olds had the highest sebum levels of all of them. So overall, the sebum production rates um, were observed between almost zero and 400 micrograms per 10 squared centimeters per three hours um, across all of the children. Compared with adolescents without acne, wet sister secretions range from 70 to 800 micrograms per 10 squared centimeters per three hours. And then adolescents with acne were sebum secretions over 1,000 micrograms per 10, squared, per 10 squared centimeters per three hours. So just looking at the numbers, um, for the children, it was zero to 400. For the adolescents without acne, it was 70 to 800. For the adolescents with acne, it was over 1,000. The study goes on to suggest that increases in adrenal secretions, specifically the hormones DHEA and DHEAS, which begins around age seven, I was shocked to learn that children as young as seven start with these adrenal secretions. Um, the study also references another study that um, found a significant correlation between urine content of several different adrenal androgens and the ratio of um, wax esters to cholesterol plus cholesterol esters. So again, basically the amount of sebum produced in um, children aged five to 10. Okay, you may want to sit down for this one. Reproductive hormones impact the rate of sebum secretion. Yeah, <laughs> like we all know that, right? And so androgens like testosterone and also dihydrotestosterone stimulate the secretion of sebum and estrogens, believe it or not, inhibit the rate of secretion. Sebaceous glands that house the sebacytes may exist independently on the surface of your skin, or they may lie in the well of a hair follicle. When they lie in the well of a hair follicle, it's known as a pilosebaceous unit. And this leads us into the conversation around the pathogenesis of acne. So the outermost layer of your skin, the stratum corneum, tracks the topography of the skin surface. So wherever there's a sebaceous gland, wherever there's a hair follicle, the stratum corneum and all of the layers of the skin below it, so like the entire stratum corneum plus the stratum corneum plus the stratum spinosum plus the stratum basal layer, follow the topography um, to maintain that barrier between your body and the environment. 
Acne is considered to be a problem with keratinization. Keratinization is also known as cornification. And in fact, there's a term for acne. Specifically, it's called follicular hyperkeratinization. Now, the keratinocytes or corneocytes, th those are synonymous. And again, we talked about them more in the first episode. Um, the keratinocytes are designed to push each other up and out of the way. And eventually, once they reach the surface of your skin, they're supposed to slough off. When things go awry, the keratinocytes stick to each other too well, and they don't shed as they should. When this happens inside of the hair follicle or clogs the surface of a hair follicle, the excess keratinocytes can plug the pilosebaceous apparatus, and this causes one of four things. It causes the formation of a blackhead, whitehead, acne pustule, or acne cyst. So the huge question, like the question we're all here for is why won't these keratinocytes just shed like they should? <sighs> Several papers demonstrate that, okay, first of all, we're gonna talk through that. We'll, we'll talk about it. And then we're gonna talk about some things that may help you with your struggle um, with acne. So stay tuned here, here, let's get into it. So several papers demonstrate that lower pH impairs wound healing by reducing keratinocyte viability and keratinocyte migration. And this is in direct contrast to the huge body of evidence that that's, um, support a more acidic environment um, aiding in rapid wound healing. But what these researchers found, and there are several of them linked in today's um, show notes, what these researchers found is that there's, there's kind of a sweet spot for wound healing. Um, and you, these particular articles found that a pH closer to seven helps with the keratinocyte migration. The question is, why is this? If we look at how desquamation happens, enzymes in your skin help promote shedding. And these enzymes perform optimally at a neutral pH of seven. Now, you're probably thinking, I mean, I don't want to tell you what you're thinking, but I know what I was thinking. Skin is acidic though, right? Yes, the um, acid mantle is acidic. As we start shed, as we start going deeper and peeling back the layers just of the stratum corneum, um, what happens is that just below the acid mantle, and as we start peeling back those layers of the stratum corneum, pH of the skin rises dramatically from a surface pH of between four and a half to five and a half or 4.0 to 6.0, depending on what range you wanna think at, think of there for the acid mantle to um, closer to seven. And this varies a little bit, depending on which paper you look at. Some papers say that by the time you reach the bottom of the stratum corneum, so wherever that is on, on our face, you can think 30 skin layers thick, um, 
that the pH is really close to seven. Other papers say it's actually at the top of that layer just below it, which I forget right now. I believe it's the stratum granulosum, but don't hold me to that. I might have it mixed up with the stratum spinosum. Um, so anyways, at the, at the top of that layer, the pH is seven or very close to seven. Um, so like, what does that mean? Well, it means that that pH gradient between your acid mantle and um, the at the surface and then the pH at the lowest level of your stratum gram means that pH gradient might be important. Um, and actually that's what we see when this pH gradient is either too shallow or too steep. It's associated with a number of skin conditions, and this might be acne, it might be eczema, it might be atopic dermatitis, it might even be rosacea. For acne, a higher pH at the skin surface is typical. However, this doesn't mean that high surface pH causes acne. It's likely a result of the pathogenesis of acne. So if pH like acne is a result of hyperkeratinization or of those keratinocytes being too sticky and not shedding properly, what can you do to help that process? Well, skin hydration is really important for controlling acne. The enzymes required for digesting the desmosomes, which hold the keratinocytes together. So you can think of the desmosomes kind of as the glue that hold the keratinocytes together. And then the enzymes themselves are the little chompers that come in and digest the glue. Um, those enzymes need water. And likewise, the lipid bilayer that composes all of the cellular membranes of your body, including your skin cells, also need water. This may be especially necessary for the cellular membrane of those sebocytes, so the sebum-containing cells, since the lipid bilayer of the sebocyte becomes part of the cellular debris when the sebocyte breaks open to release the sebum. Those lipid bilayers can crystallize when there's not enough water around, and this leads to an uneven appearance even in the absence of acne. So, mm, I'm not sure if you've ever noticed on your skin. I'll give you an example because I've definitely seen it on mine. So occasionally I'll have a spot that comes up that is, so it's not, it's not an acne pustule. Um, it's just a little raised spot that is the same color as the skin. It's just a raised area. It kind of looks like it might be acne, but it's not. I'm pretty sure that's what they're talking about in this paper. Um, I wasn't able to find images of this in any of the articles that I pulled up on that were talking about these bilayers um, crystallizing, but I think that's what they're talking about. So how do you get more water into your skin? <sighs> I'm not gonna tell you to drink more water. I mean, that's just, that's crazy, right? Um, like. You know that already. 
but how do you, how do you get your how do you get your skin and how do you get your body to actually absorb more water more of what you drink so oftentimes if you feel like you drink plenty of water and your skin is still dry or you feel like you drink plenty of water but like it's just going right through you then here are some ways that you can encourage your body's tissues to absorb more of the water that you drink you can warm it up so drinking lukewarm or even hot water instead of cold water helps your body absorb more of it. You can also add lemon to it. Um, if you don't have lemon, ginger or a little teeny tiny pinch of salt are two other ingredients that you can reach for. Um, and then sip your water throughout the day. So don't so basically throughout the day, our skin is constantly losing water through transepidermal water loss. So it doesn't make a ton of sense to try to drink a bunch of water in the morning or at midday instead, just kind of break it up and sit, you know, over the course of a day. So um, that helps also just maintaining hydration throughout the day. Another thing that you can do is get your daily dose of PUFAs, so polyunsaturated fatty acids, and there's a great deal of controversy over polyunsaturated fatty acids. Um, safflower oil, canola oil, soybean oil, of course, those are the common fryer oils. They really shouldn't be used for frying or cooking your food. And the reason for this is that these oils are fragile um, unless it's, well, I didn't mention sunflower oil here, but unless it's high oleic sunflower oil, those oils are all fragile, um, which means that their fatty acids contain multiple and saturation points. And when they're heated to temperatures that aren't even all that high, I mean, we're talking 150 to 300 degrees Fahrenheit here, they can very quickly start to break down um, and, the, and form oxidative species. So instead, but still, your body needs PUFAs, like straight up. They're essential. Omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids are essential for a reason. Your body can't make them and it needs it, including your skin cells. So when it comes to omega-6, chances are that you're getting your daily intake of omega-6 without thinking about it too much if you're eating nuts and seeds. Omega-3 is a little bit trickier, especially if you're vegan. Aside from fish, good sources of omega-3 are flaxseed and chia seed. Pistachios, Brazil nuts, and Brussels sprouts are three more good sources of omega-3. And um, these seeds do tend to go, like flaxseed and chia seed, tend to go rancid pretty quickly because of their high oil content. However, there's a great deal of fear, deal of fear around, um, oh, by the time, like, it's all over the internet, by the time you buy your flax seeds, they're already rancid. No, that's not true. You, the thing with rancidity is you can taste it and you can smell it. So when you taste, when you, like, bite your flax seeds, if you're, if you're buying the whole ones and you're grinding them immediately before use, or if you're buying the whole ones and you're eating them that way, like when you're, when you're chewing them, you'll be able to tell pretty quickly if they're rancid or if they smell like they've gone off, then they've gone out like, then it's time to toss them. Um, 
I'm just not, I'm just not a huge fan of fear mongering though. This got us all kind of up in a tizzy, like there's enough fear without creating, without generating it. So anyways, um, that's the time to toss them. Otherwise, like those are really great sources. And so, yeah, just common tips for that are store in the freezer, take out what you need for the week. Whole food sources is probably better. So opt for the flaxseed instead of the flaxseed oil. Although I've done both, honestly, with the flaxseed oil, I just keep it in the fridge all the time. Um, if it's bulk, I keep it in the freezer. Um, but yeah, so anyways, there, when it comes to botanical oils, there are two really great articles over on Rain Organica's site. They're linked in today's show notes and they go into depth on botanical oils because this is one of the things that I've spent a great deal of time researching because botanical oils, of course, are one of the key ingredients in all of the products. Okay, all of the products might be a little, most of the products, um, except for the oil-free um, products. So anyways, um, those two posts are a little bit dry, so I'm not sure that I, right now, they're not in a state to turn them into a podcast episode. At some point, I, if I get bored, I might um, take a look back and see if it makes sense to convert those over and share in podcast form. Um, okay, so moving on, another way to help your skin out is to apply ingredients that reduce transepidermal water loss. So what are these ingredients? Occlusives is one class of these ingredients, and this would include high molecular weight hyaluronic acid and also certain oils and butters that form a film on the surface of your skin. So what would spent samples of those be? Shea butter is a great one. Cocoa butter um, is another one. Argan oil is another one. So argan oil, um, argan oil also has emollient properties, which we'll talk about here in a minute. And in addition, it has those kind of film forming properties where it sits on the surface of your skin. Olive oil is another one. So argan and olive both. Um, Another class of ingredients that help reduce transepidermal water loss is water binding ingredients. So this would be aloe, panthenol, or provitamin B5. Those are synonymous. Low molecular weight hyaluronic acid. Um, and all of those help to bind water and help retain it within your skin. So those soak into your skin and then bind water there to help your skin retain it. The last class of ingredients that help prevent transepidermal water loss are oils. And yes, this is why oils are considered moisturizing. Um, it goes back to PUFAs. A lack of essential fatty acids is linked to eczema and a number of other skin conditions. And the cellular membrane of your body cells and also your skin cells incorporate oils, specifically free fatty acids, into the lipid bilayer in those essential fatty acids um, both omega-3 and omega-6 are necessary for healthy cellular membranes. Okay, then lastly, exfoliate from within. Now, what do I mean by this? Okay, like, 
All right, so often, so, okay, let's just talk through the two classes of exfoliation. I think that'll be the easiest. So physical exfoliation is where you're sloughing off the outermost layer of skin. And this is typically with something a little bit abrasive. I mean, if it's your face, not, not anything too crazy abrasive and it, it, almost the gentler, the better there. Um, some type of um, clay, Mm, that's really about the extent of what I would recommend. Um, definitely nothing too harsh. You want it to be nice and smooth. Clay is great. Clay works in a number of ways. Clay and dead sea mud um, both work in a number of ways. So exfoliation is one. The other thing is they actually absorb um, or adsorb really impurities in your skin and help pull those out. The other, um, so that's physical exfoliation. We'll leave it there because we're going to limit this to face. Um, and then chemical exfoliation. So this, of course, like the, the most well-known ones of these are glycolic acid and lactic acid. And this is specifically when those two ingredients are used at high enough concentration to um, have, a, have an acidic product. So I'm thinking between like pH three and four, typically. Um, although the pH can be lower than three um, for some like clinical uh, clinical lines at spas and things. Um, now, just to be perfectly clear here, lactic acid can also be an ingredient and is commonly used in skincare as a pH um, adjuster or pH modifier. And uh, in, so like if you see lactic acid on an ingredients list, but the, the let's say it's just a lotion, a face lotion, it's typically because they're using it as a pH adjuster and it's not, it's, that's not going to provide the same exfoliation effects because it's not in the same acidic, acidity range. Um, so anyways, when we're talking about a pH of that, oh, salicylic acid is another one. So the lactic and the glycolic are both, the lactic acid and glycolic acid are both alpha hydroxy acids and uh, salicylic acid is a beta hydroxy acid. So when these are applied topically and um, they soak into the skin and they help the desquamation process by helping with that ungluing process. So again, helping the um, break down the desmosomes or the hold of the desmosomes between the keratinocytes. Now, the problem with this is that the enzymes that your body produces naturally function best around a pH of seven. And these ingredients, well, the products, these ingredients themselves are all acidic. Um, and in addition to that, the products that they're in that are intended for exfoliation are all quite acidic. So again, we're talking a pH of less than four. So well under the acid mantle, or un, I say well under, under the um, acid mantle, the pH of the acid mantle itself, and then definitely under the pH as you start going through those stratum corneum layers. So what this can do is disrupt your body's natural process of desquamation. And so they're kind of working counter to your body's own means of enzymatic um, desquamation. So I don't really recommend chemical exfoliation. However, there are ingredients that actually benefit the, um, the cells in your stratum basal layer. So these are the living corneocytes or the living keratinocytes. 
And the most well-known of those ingredients is niacinamide. And what this, this does is it encourages a normal desquamation process. So it encourages those cells to migrate as they should. It just, it, you can think of it almost as like lubricating their keratinization process. So niacinamide is the most well-known of those. Um, L-carnitine is another one that I really like. So L-carnitine is an ingredient that your body can make naturally from a couple of different amino acids. However, um, it's also one I've found personally that my acne prone skin enjoys. Um, and because both of these ingredients are helping with that exfoliation so that just the cellular turnover rate and helping, helping to promote a healthy cellular turnover rate, they are confined only to the night lotion. And this is the big reason why Rain Organica offers a night lotion is because since above all else, I prioritize protection, I really feel like um, if like when you're struggling with acne, when you're struggling with dry skin or lackluster skin, it's better just to include the separate night lotion than it is to use the day and night lotion that's offered by Rain Organica. And it's simply to help with that. It's helped to promote and encourage healthy cellular turnover. Now, the very last thing, so it's kind of, it, it's helping support your body's natural exfoliation process. Um, and then the very last thing in this on how, ways you can help support your skin as it moves through acne, as it moves through like whatever skin condition you've got going on, really. The last way is um, with the use of ceramides. Ceramides are one of the ingredients that are deficient both in acne prone skin and also in dry skin, and they help regulate sebum production. So it's one it you can, I tend to think of them almost, so we talk about adaptogens so much these days and adaptogens helping you deal with stress, like regardless of which way it is, they kind of bring you back into balance. And I feel like ceramides are the same way. They just are operating um, on sebum. So they help bring it back into balance. So it's balanced sebum production. So regardless of whether you're not producing enough and have dry skin or you're producing too much and you have acne prone skin, they're helping just to balance that. Um, so the ceramides are also found in even tight night lotion. So we have talked about so much today. Uh, started out talking about skin's pH at the surface, dove a little deeper and talked about how that how the pH gradient um, shifts from quite acidic at the surface at the very top of the acid mantle or on top of the acid mantle to low, um, near closer to physiologic pH by the time you reach the bottom of the stratum corneum or the top of that stratum granulosum layer. And then we also talked about sebum production um, in children compared with adults or specifically in children compared with adolescents and adolescents with acne. And then um, I feel like I'm leaving something out. Moved into ways that you can support your skin uh, and talked through quite a bit of that. So that is, that's, I feel like this has been a ton of information. Thank you for sticking with me through this one. 
next time on the podcast, uh, we are going back to bi-weekly. So the next episode will be, will air December 29th. That is when with Jen Trepic and she shares the five fat factors and why, well, she, she has her own way for flipping um, what we've been fed about diets on its head. So that was a great conversation and I'm looking forward to sharing that one with you. All right, until next time, bye.